welcome to our People Talk podcast. Thanks for listening today. We're going to be focusing on the important topic of employee fraud today. So we're going to have a look at various aspects of uh, employee fraud. The government recently reported that fraud is actually now the most prevalent criminal offence in the UK. It represents more than 40% of all reported crimes, so it is a big issue. And we're joined today by Stephen Richards, a partner in our fraud team here at Fatansty, and also Natalie Painter from our employment team. So Steve, over to you to just introduce yourself and for you to talk a little bit about what you do in relation to fraud. Thank you, Karen, and hello, everybody. Yes, my name's Stephen Richards. I'm a partner here at Fortunsty in a commercial litigation practice. But most importantly, I head up our fraud team here, and we see all types of fraud, both um, from employers, employees, businesses, you name it. It's, as Karen said, it's very prevalent. It's the biggest crime in this country by far, and I'll talk about that later. But we're here primarily to assist our business clients in making sure that they take the right steps to prevent fraud. There's lots of things we can do and we can talk about those things today. So thank you very much for having me. And we're also going to cover the new potential offence of failure to prevent fraud for corporate entities. So that's something that's quite important for people to be aware of. I'm not sure everyone is aware of that. So do listen out. We'll be covering that a bit later on in the podcast. What you need to think about in order to ensure that your business is not at risk from a finding against the business itself if there is fraud committed by an employee. As we've seen, the coronavirus pandemic has changed the world of work dramatically. The way that we work has changed. Employees are working remotely more than ever before. We're perhaps working with different technology, different types of tools in the workplace, and that has made the ability for employees to perpetuate fraud probably come up the agenda and and be more prevalent than ever. Most employees and third parties are trustworthy, but what can we do and what can we look out for in terms of the warning signs of employee fraud? So Natalie, what are the sort of things that um, we've seen in practice coming up in this space? Because some of them are not always what we might expect. I think we're all used to some of the topics like phishing emails and large scale sort of financial fraud. But there's also sometimes, you know, misrepresentations or matters where individual employees might be misleading the business, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. Cybersecurity is obviously a massive issue in terms of fraud at the moment. And then you've got your really obvious examples of employees fiddling their expenses. But we see lots of other different ways of employees trying to defraud their employers. You know, we've even seen individuals within businesses adding ghost employees to the payroll. So this might be people that just don't exist or or people that do exist but don't actually work for the employer. And they're just added and paid, but without actually doing anything for the employer. And then last year, there was an extraordinary case with the chairman of the Royal Cornwall Hospital's NHS Trust. He'd spent a decade working as the chairman of two NHS trusts, and he was the chief executive of a hospice. During this time, and when he got the role, he claimed that he had a PhD, an MBA, a history of senior management roles, but it turned out it was all an entire lie. So his CV was a fraud. Um, He was actually found out and prosecuted for fraud. And the courts found it quite tricky as to whether or not he should repay his salary because obviously his salary was obtained by deception and by fraud. But they also they did accept that ultimately he did provide some valuable services to his employer. But ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that he should have to repay it in that situation, which I think we'll probably agree is, is the right decision. Now, obviously, CV fraud on that type of level is rare, but it does show the importance of doing your due diligence at every step of the employment relationship. And and fraud can take place 
at every time during an employment relationship. It's not just those obvious examples of, of submitting false expenses claims. Thanks, Nat. Um, Steve, in terms of what you've seen in terms of trends, have you seen new developments as a result of the pandemic, would you say? Well, um, I think, it, yes, we certainly have overall. Um, the survey was carried out earlier this year by BDO, the national accountancy firm, um, and their findings, I think, reflected what we've generally seen. They surveyed 500 mid-sized companies and 78% of those businesses said their exposure to crime had increased since remote working has become commonplace. Um, and unless and until we all decide that we all have to work five days in the office again, I think those statistics are likely to continue. In working from home, I think it impacts in a number of ways. I mean, certainly, as we've touched on, it makes it easier, um, and we've definitely seen this, for employees to commit fraud. Um, you've touched on the fact that they have different devices or the, the risk of using different devices and different accounts if they're working from home. And it gives rise to, for example, employees coming up with or uh, excuses for sending confidential information or data to other devices or accounts uh, on the premise that they need to do that because they're working from home. And that's certainly a very prevalent theme we see that's only increased since the pandemic and working from home which is fraud based on employees taking confidential information or data. It's not just relating to money, this. It's also become easier, I think, for third parties to pick off vulnerabilities um, in the workforce. Almost all fraud within a business context is based on looking at human error and people exposing those vulnerabilities. It's easier for fraudsters to do that where people are working from home. Um, they're likely to be a little bit more relaxed, a little bit less vigilant, and a little bit less aware. They're not having those those conversations internally about what red flags might look like, what to be aware of. People are just more vulnerable. And, and of course, there's the obvious practical steps as well. Um, people working from home, you take your laptop home, you take work home with you, it's more at risk of being lost. So certainly we see trends in this area and I don't see them abating at all. And how is that landscape changing in relation to the government's proposals around the corporate offence of failure to prevent fraud? And we talk there about individual employees and what they might do that certainly might harm the business in terms of financial loss or reputational damage. But Steve, this is really going to up the ante, isn't it, in terms of what the impact could be for senior managers, for example, if there is fraud within the business? Well, absolutely. And I think it's as good a time as any to talk about this new legislation that's coming in. Um, so this is the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill. It's a bill. It's still being debated in government, but it's highly likely to come through now into formal legislation this side of Christmas. As you've touched on, Karen, rightly, more than 40% of all crime in this country is now fraud or fraud-related offences. It's big business. And what the government has seen is that business itself, corporates um, of any size, are conduits for a lot of this fraud, either knowingly or unknowingly. And what the government's realised that needed to do in terms of its overall strategy for tackling fraud is get businesses to take responsibility to carry the can for some of this and to help eradicate fraud. And this legislation goes a long way towards that. Now, it's a big piece of legislation, and that's another talk in itself. But one particular offence that's, I think, most relevant for today's purposes to talk about 
is this new failure to prevent fraud offence. It's a new criminal offence making certain organisations liable for their failure to prevent fraud. Specifically, a company, a relevant company, I'll come back to that, will be guilty of this criminal offence if someone associated with that business, so it might be most likely a director or any employee, amongst others, commits a specified fraud offence intending to benefit the company or someone that the company provides services to. So it's a very draconian piece of legislation and no business of any size is going to want to be found liable for criminal offence, not least because there will be an unlimited fine here, but also because of all of the very prejudicial and adverse consequences of being found liable for criminal offence in terms of PR and compliance issues and you name it. It's a bad thing. And this is the whole point of the legislation to make sure that businesses do what they can to prevent fraud. Now, just quickly here, as I say, it's a talk in itself, but there are a couple of defences to this. One, if the business can show that it was a victim of the fraud rather than being someone who's an intended beneficiary of the fraud, then the business won't be liable. Also, and this is the most critical thing, the business won't be liable if it's deemed that it had reasonable prevention procedures in place to try and stamp out fraud. And that's the critical thing here. And the Secretary of State will be issuing guidelines before this legislation is published as to what those reasonable prevention procedures look like. Now, the important thing to bear in mind at this stage is that whilst this is a very serious offence, as currently drafted, it only applies to what is deemed to be large organisations. So that's an organisation that satisfies two of the following criteria. So that's, does it have turnover of 36 million or above? Does it have a balance sheet of 18 million plus? And does it have more than 250 staff? If you tick two of those boxes, then you're a large organisation and this offence will apply to you. However, those figures may change. The current debate in the House of Lords is whether to extend this to smaller SMEs. But even if it's not extended to SMEs, either now or in the future, I think any prudent business wanting to eradicate fraud for its own benefit to ensure that it isn't exposed to the risks I talk about would be well advised to follow the guidelines in any event. So I think this is a real case of watch this space. Um, and as we say, there's a talk in itself on this topic and we're happy to talk about that in due course. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely something that we'll um, revisit as we get more clarity on what that's exactly going to look like. I think uh, for the purposes of today, what would be great now is just to look from your experience. What are some of the warning signs that we should look out for? Who should we be vigilant about when we are considering how to reduce or prevent employee fraud? The answer to this will be it depends really on the business itself, but there's some common themes here in terms of what to look out for. But at the very top of this, I suppose there are two things to think about and then a combination of those two things. The first thing is which of your staff has access to valuable assets of the company, the ability to transfer those assets. So the most fundamental and obvious answer to that question is, well, who in the business is dealing with the transfer of money in and out of the company? It may be the accounts department, but there may be people who have to authorise that. But who has control over that? Where are the vulnerabilities in that system? Um, that's obvious. But also, a lot of businesses, it's not just about money. Data, particularly in, in the modern world, data is often as, if not sometimes more important than money to a business, making sure that data is safeguarded. Um, there was a very high profile case 
a couple of years ago involving the supermarket chain Morrison's, where an employee had access to and had used wrongfully and fraudulently a list of customer data. Um, so that that was critical to that business that they took action there. So the first issue is to identify who in your business has access to and control over assets or sensitive assets. The second aspect is to identify, are there any staff who might be particularly vulnerable? And the highest category there is what we call disgruntled staff. Anyone who um, has a grievance to bear, who might have been through a disciplinary procedure, who might have been told off by the business, the cases you read are almost invariably cases involving one or both of the factors that I've talked about. So people in a position of responsibility who may be disgruntled are always going to be at the top of the people that you need to be looking out for and, and doing the relevant checks for. Natalie, what do we typically see from an employment law point of view? Who are the, you know, where are the risk signs there in terms of employees and their behaviour? I would say a big red flag is always the employees that are actually, they seem like model employees in the sense that they work in long hours, they work on their weekends, they never take time off, they're never off sick, they never really take annual leave. When they are on annual leave, they're the ones always on their phone, picking up their matters, not letting anybody else deal with it. But what those employees might be hiding is actually that there is fraud on on their matters or, or the things that they're dealing with. And they're just keeping control of those pieces of work for themselves so that nobody else discovers that. So it's not always going to be the case. Sometimes they are just very conscientious employees, but you just might want to be wary of why is somebody protecting their work so closely and not letting anybody else get a hold on it. And then obviously you've got a situation if you've got an employee's lifestyle that seems far beyond their means and, and doesn't match the salary that you as an employer know that you're paying them. And obviously, you don't want to delve too deeply into your employees' personal lives. So they may have wealth from other places. But again, it's just something to be conscious of and, and perhaps to think about if you think that there is some fraud within the business. So how can we prevent or reduce the risk of fraud occurring in the first place? Well, look, I think the first thing that businesses need to realise is that it's not possible to completely guarantee that you can eradicate all fraud. But businesses can take prudent steps to significantly reduce that risk. It sounds trite to say that the key to all of this is to have a plan in place to ensure that you are taking the right steps to prevent and to reduce the risk of fraud. That has to be a plan which is bespoke to your business. Every business is different. Every business has different objectives, different risk registers. And so you have to have the right plan in place. But at the heart of that plan will be a system whereby you have the right anti-fraud policies and procedures in place, that those are regularly reviewed, that they are regularly tested and publicised internally so that there is regular communication about them, staff at all levels are aware of them and are being tested on them regularly. Email penetration testing, for example, whereby you are trying to fish out the business's vulnerability to email phishing. So everyone is always aware of where the red flags are for this business and everyone's vigilant about it. It's also important, going back to the start of an employment relationship, to make sure that all staff are properly vetted, that you've got a robust and enhanced recruitment process, that where applicable, 
you are double checking people's CVs and references. There's a number of cases out there we've talked about where employees um, exaggerate what's on their CV and references. When employees are signed up under the employment contract, there's a number of controls that can be put in place there to ensure that where a fraud does take place, the business is better protected. So, for example, the ability of employees to uh, what they can and can't do with valuable data, what they can and can't do with confidential information. All these things will help the business. The important point to bear in mind here is that if an employee does in future commit a fraud, one thing the business may want to do is go to court and get the court to take action against the person or to make orders in favour of the company, for example, freezing their assets or requiring them to hand over documents or IT equipment. The willingness of the court to assist the company in those circumstances will be greatly assisted if the business can show that time and time again, they made the employee aware of the relevant fraud policies and procedures. And time and time again, the employee agreed because in the event of a fraud, the argument would go that the employee has behaved dishonestly by knowingly reading those, knowing what the fraud policy was and knowingly then breaching them. And that can be very critical if you need to take action. Absolutely. I think that clarity of expectation and the record keeping to show what the expectation was is undoubtedly really important. Natalie, quite often in cases of employee fraud, we'll find that other employees within the business, once you know the matter develops, will say they did have suspicions or they had concerns. What are the few things that employers could do to make sure that those concerns are raised at that early stage? Yeah, it's always amazing, isn't it, what comes out of the woodwork once somebody's sort of been discovered and found out and how many people say, oh, actually, I, I knew that was going on. Um, in which case, you need to have a really clear whistleblowing policy for your employees. It needs to specifically refer to fraud so that employees are aware it can be used for that. Absolutely regular reminding um, and regular training to employees about that whistleblowing policy and making it really clear and easy for them to report their concerns. So don't make them jump through hoops to report if they do have a suspicion, but make it really easy for them to do and make sure everybody within that business knows how to do it from day one. So let's move on to looking at actually what should an employer do immediately on discovering fraud. It can be quite a shock. There can be quite a lot of pressure on the business at that point. But we frequently see that when a, a fraud first comes to light, you know, there's a number of steps that can usefully be taken. So it'd be good to just share a few of those now. Natalie, in your view, what are the first few steps that they should take? I think the key throughout, and, and particularly first of all, when you discover the fraud, is to remain calm and make sure that any internal discussions you have are calm, they're not emotive, and that actually they stay productive. Because what that crucially allows you to do as an employer is to take control of the situation. So you need to sit down with your senior leaders, take control, devise a plan together, and then you need to look at, okay, well, who do we need to involve in this? Do we need to involve solicitors to consider disciplinary procedures, or do we need to consider involving forensic accountants? Is there a reputational risk? You know, as Stephen said, it's not all about financial and monetary fraud. It can be about data fraud as well. Actually, with the Morrison's case, you have to get your PR out there straight away. Um, or do we need sort of recovery experts as well involved in that? 
And also what you'll always want to consider as an employer is when and how should we involve the police or even actually whether we should involve the police. I know Stephen's had some experience on this in the past and I'd, I'd be interested on his thoughts from his team's point of view on whether the police should be involved with those internal investigations. I think from my perspective as a fraud litigator, someone at the coalface of dealing with the reaction of a business when they discover a fraud, at the heart of anything you decide to do, whether it's going to the police, whether it's taking civil action, whether it's notifying your insurers, whether it's conducting an internal investigation, there's a story here to tell. And I don't mean uh, necessarily an interesting or a favourable story, but a, a narrative once that narrative can be put together in terms of what the employee has done, how they've done it, and when they've done it, getting the facts right, the story together, that is at the heart of everything you do. So when businesses come to us, that is what we are always focus on, pulling the story together, backed up with the documents. Because once you've done that properly, you can then use that as a platform to take any number of actions. So it's quite critical. In addition to looking at what urgent steps you need to take as a business to make sure that you mitigate any risk, for example, notifying a bank if you think money's gone astray, or notifying your insurers, or perhaps suspending the employee in question. It's in parallel with that, getting the story together and putting the documents together. Because once that's done once and done correctly, it can then be used in a various number of different formats. So it's very important. What to do in terms of going to the police? It must be remembered that if there's been a fraud by an employee here, either on the business or involving a supplier, for example, and it's a fraud, it's highly likely to be both a civil and a criminal offence. So if a director, for example, has his hands in the till or her hands in the till and takes too much money, that might be a breach of their fiduciary duties, a civil offence, but it also might be theft. And businesses will often say, well, which route do we go down? Now, yes, a business can and in certain circumstances probably should go to the police if it thinks there's been a criminal offence committed. It's free to go to the police and it won't cost the business for the police to investigate it and to bring charges. Going to the police will send a very strong message to the rest of the workforce that the business is going to take strong action here. And it can be very effective if the business is ultimately looking for justice, as we say. It's looking to make sure that someone pays for their crime in the non-monetary sense. However, what people and business needs to remember is that the police and the CPS, if they're going to investigate matters, are not primarily concerned, at least to start off with, with the business losses and recovering those losses. Now, that may be an indirect consequence of someone being criminally charged if found liable. They may be subject to what are known as confiscation and compensation orders to get some money back. But certainly in the initial stage of the investigation, the police will be most interested in securing a conviction, not about recovering the money or the assets that have been taken. The other thing to bear in mind with going to the police is that police investigations can take a long time and you won't have any control over that. And they can sometimes have a prejudicial impact on your own investigations and your own civil recovery. So, for example, police may seize documents. and We've had a case recently where they've done so and refused to allow the business to have access to those documents, as the police have said it may prejudice an ongoing criminal inquiry. And also, if someone a fraudster or an employee who's committed a fraud is made subject to criminal proceedings, they can, in certain circumstances, ask the court to stay 
any civil proceedings as the that them defending civil and criminal proceedings at the same time could be said to be oppressive. So there's no rule of thumb about this, but often where a fraud has been committed, it tends to be the case that the advice given to the business, who's primarily concerned with protecting its commercial interests, is go to the police, but once you've exhausted your immediate civil routes here, done your own investigations, and it may well be that the civil remedies that you can get, court injunctions, court orders, you can get very quickly, you take control over it, you limit the damage in that respect. And then at that point, if the business still wants justice, inverted commas, then that might be the right time to involve the police. Um, Natalie, what are the key employment law obligations when an employer is looking at investigating fraud? So the usual employment law principles apply in this situation. There's sort of no special rules just because it's a fraud. So if you are investigating an employee for potential fraud, you'll want to make sure that you follow a fair and reasonable disciplinary process. You know, make sure you're following your disciplinary procedure, the ACAS code and, and all of those usual type things. Yeah, I think Stephen alluded to it earlier, but you might want to consider suspending the employee if there's a possibility that either they might continue to commit the fraud whilst they're still employed, you know, particularly if they're working from home and and you have less control and oversight over them, or if they might interfere with the disciplinary process. And fraud is potentially a gross misconduct issue. So you'll need to be looking to demonstrate that it's suitably serious to justify dismissal for gross misconduct and within the range of reasonable responses. We have had situations before where actually the fraud isn't necessarily a workplace fraud. It's an employee who has been found through a criminal trial guilty of fraud outside of the workplace. And then we had to look at, okay, what do we dismiss them? What do we dismiss them for, etc. in those situations, because that's not necessarily gross misconduct within the workplace. If you've got those type of situations, you might be looking at going down a some other substantial reason route. Um, if you can no longer trust the employee, particularly if their role is one where trust is really crucial, or in this particular case, the employee was actually sentenced to prison for quite a substantial number of years for the fraud that he had committed. And so in that case, the employer took the decision to frustrate the contract aside and it could no longer be performed. But that's a really rare situation. So most of the time you're going to be looking possibly at a misconduct or a some other substantial reason route. But whichever way you go, the key is to follow a fair process, as you normally would do for a disciplinary, and ensure consistency as well, so that employees know what the expectations are on them. Absolutely. I think the other thing to think about in relation to the business itself and protecting the business would be, whilst you've got those important processes going on in relation to the employee or employees themselves, if it's a matter that will attract public attention, is being ready with communication strategies, statements around what the business is doing, particularly if you're customer facing, how customers are being protected in this scenario. So there is a lot to think about. And I tend to find it's useful to map out those tasks to begin with, make sure they're all being covered off, just to ensure that the damage to the business is is limited where possible. If it's a, a matter of employee fraud that the business would have struggled to prevent or couldn't prevent, but now needs to, you know, effectively do damage limitation to make sure that customers still have faith in the the processes of the business. I think it is quite important to keep reviewing those communication procedures. 
But whilst doing that, undoubtedly, you'll have a difficult and challenging confidential employment situation to deal with as well. So quite a lot for an employer to deal with. But I hope that the podcast today has helped you, A, with the practicalities of actually what to think about in terms of some policies and procedures to have in place, what's coming up on the horizon. So definitely keeping an eye on failure to prevent fraud and the potential for criminal liability there. And as Stephen Flagg, we will certainly be producing more content on that. So keep an eye on our bulletins and newsletters. And then we've just covered off there at the end some things to think about in terms of whether you go to the police or what you do in relation to a fair employment investigation. Thank you very much to Stephen and Natalie for joining today. Thanks, Karen. Thank you, Karen, very much. And for all those listening, if you follow the advice we've given today, I'd I'd rather hope you never have to contact me. That's the perfect situation that we hope for, isn't it? That nobody has to contact us about these things. But it goes without saying, if actually this podcast has given you any food for thought, any concerns, any input that you might want in terms of policies or procedures, just get in touch with any one of us and we'll be able to help you a bit further with that.